Today we have a special guest, uh, Reverend Augie. Uh, can you please come? Augie is the staff at the MMBB, which is Ministers and Missionary Benefit Board. And he is the representative in this West Coast area. So he will be with us at our board meeting, and the staff is also going to be there in the first part of the meeting. Uh, but more than that, the Augie that I know is the one that loves uh, God, and he loves the church. I, I have uh, known him for quite many years now, and I can see his heart. He has a passion for people. He has a passion for the church. And uh, you will hear that in his story today. So let's welcome him. Thank you, Pastor Valui. And um, your church is very fortunate to have two wonderful pastors, um, Pastor Valui and Pastor Margaret. They're both um, leaders, not just at your church, but in the National American Baptist denomination. And I also wanted to mention Pastor Jonathan. I think October is Pastor Appreciation Month. So if you haven't had a chance to say thank you to the pastors and staff of this church, be sure to do that because they spend a lot of time, a lot of prayer, a lot of effort behind the scenes um, helping the the church to grow and to to develop. Um, Let's begin with a word of prayer. Loving God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity, the freedom to gather, to worship, and we pray that your spirit continue to speak to each of our hearts. We thank you for the singing, for the ministries um, happening at this church, and especially now we ask that your Holy Spirit be the one that speaks to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Um, Raise your hand if you're a basketball fan. Any basketball fans here? Okay, keep your hands up if you're a Warriors fan. Any Warriors fan? Okay, yeah, it seems like maybe half of you. Um, If you're a basketball fan, especially you're a Warriors fan, who is the key to the success of the Warriors? Um, Raise your hand if you think the owners are the ones who who are the most important piece to the Warriors. Okay, they're the ones that kind of pay the bills and set the tone of the team. Um, how many people think it's the general manager who, who's the most important? Nobody? Okay, forget the general manager. The general manager is the one who kind of gets the player, signs a contract, figures out the salary cap, all those things. How many of you think it's the coach that's the most important? Okay, a, a lot of people. The coach, he's the one who kind of sets the rotation, keeps the players happy. And nowadays on the Warriors, it's almost like they have too many good players, too many all-stars. So you have to massage the egos and make sure all the players are happy. And how many people think the players are the most important part of the team's success? Okay, even more people. And even amongst the players, there, some people think it's... Uh, Curry or Thompson or Green or Durant. You know, that there are a lot of different players that even amongst the players, you might think that they're the most important. Um, how many people think the video assistant is the most important part of their success? Okay. Okay, one person. Okay. One person just woke up and ra- raised their hand. Okay. But actually, if you remember back in 2015, when the Warriors won their first championship, There was this 20-something-year-old, 28-year-old video assistant. His name was Nick Uren. 
And in the middle of the night, he came up with an idea that he texted um, Coach Kerr. And he said, I think we should start Andre Iguodala. Instead of him coming off the bench, which he was willing to do, we should start him so that he could guard LeBron James for more minutes. And to um, Steve Kerr's credit, the coach's credit, he actually listened to this 28-year-old video assistant and changed the starting lineup in the middle of the championship playoffs. And um, the rest is history. The Warriors won their first championship. And some of it was because they were able to not stop, but somewhat neutralize or not have um, LeBron James score as many points because Iguodala was in the lineup right from the start and played more minutes on defense. So sometimes even somebody as insignificant as a video assistant, a 20-something-year-old guy who around the clock instead of praying is looking at videos and kind of cutting and pasting kind of the plays for the players and the coaches to, to view the next morning, this 20-something-year-old person contributed to the Warriors' success. Um, I don't know if you could see clearly from the picture, but on the left-hand side is the Warriors, the championship team, and on the right-hand side is my championship team. And I, and I know I, I look old. I'm actually 58 years old. Because of my gray hair, a lot of people ask me, what did you used to do? You know, meaning I'm retired. But I'm still working for MMBB, which is the National Pension Board for the American Baptists. And I still play basketball. In fact, I still play about three times a week, um, full court in leagues. And the reason I'm still playing is I'm really, really slow. I jump about this much, but I still have some tread on my knees. You know, all the high leapers are done in their 40s. But I'm 58, and I'm still playing because I'm slow, and I, I don't jump much. But this summer, I um, play with a bunch of guys, and we actually won an over 40 three-on-three tournament. And my success, the way I make a difference, is not from my basketball skills, because I know my limitations, I know what I can and can't do. The way I make a difference is I recruit good players to play with me. <laughs> and I substitute, well, I have them play most of the game, and I only come in when they need like a couple-minute breather. And sometimes I plan good strategies. So in, in our three-on-three tournament, we had this one guy, Chris Robinson, um, African-American guy, fairly tall, but he's like 240 pounds. So we basically, the plan was he would set screens, and then the rest of us would go around him. They would, the other person would pass us the ball, and we would shoot. And it takes about 10 seconds for somebody to go around Chris Robinson. So we got a lot of open shots. So that, 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 that was the strategy. So whoever we are, even as someone like myself, who's really old and non-athletic, we can make a difference in terms of playing basketball by getting good players and planning good strategies. Um, this morning, I would like to preach on the first, um, the first letter of John, and it, it's, it's the next slide. And first John um, was written by John, the same person who wrote the Gospel of John. You know, the Gospel of John is one of the four major Gospels, and John also wrote several letters, and this is the first letter of John. And one of the purposes of the first letter of John was to counteract um, the heresy of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is a heresy, which is like a false teaching, 
which claims that the spirit is good, but the body is bad. They kind of separated the spirit and the body. And Gnosticism said we could only focus on the things of the spirit and kind of ignore the things of the flesh or the things of the body. But what the author of 1 John, John was trying to say, is that both of them are important, that the spirit and the body are important. In fact, God himself came in the form of a human being and therefore prioritized the importance of the body. And 1 John talks about some of the basics of the Christian faith, things including sin, forgiveness, and love. And this morning, uh, our scripture reading is going to be from 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. And if we can read together, um, 1 John 3, 16 to 18, and this is from the New International Vision. So read it with me. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So three very simple verses, all talking about our theme for this morning, which is making a difference with our lives. Um, in this passage, it, there are several um, Greek words. Um, and the next slide talk shows some of the Greek words for love. Um, the first one is eros, um, which comes from a Greek term which means desire and longing. In, in Greek mythology, Eros is the Greek god of love. But the emphasis is on the physical connection, like between a husband and wife. And Eros is the most basic or elementary um, type of love. The next Greek word is storge, which means natural affection. Sort of love that you have for people that you see regularly. So storage would be the love that you have for other church members here at church or love that you have for your co-workers. Um, philia is an even deeper form of love. And philia is the kind of love that you have with a close friend or companion, um, sort of like a BFF or best friend forever type of love. And in fact, um, the name Philadelphia, you know, the city Philadelphia, it's sometimes known as the city of brotherly love because Philadelphia comes from um, philia, which is the Greek word for, for brotherly or deep love. And then the last and highest form of love is agape, which it means the divine love, the love that Almighty God shows for us. So these are four types of love. And... In the passage that we just read, um, when it uses the word love, it mostly uses the word agape, which is the godly form of love. So 1 John 3.16, which is the next slide, um, talks about the highest form of agape love. And it says, this is how we know what true love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us as the ultimate sacrifice. 
So when this uses the word love in 1 John 3.16, it uses the word agape, the deepest, the highest form of love, the godly love, the sacrificial love, the willingness to love someone so much that you would give up your life for someone. And obviously the Bible doesn't necessarily mean that each of us should be giving up our lives. There might be some cases, in some cases um, that we read about where someone actually does give their life up for someone. But what the Bible is saying is this is something we're striving for, to love other people, to love our community, to love our world so much that if necessary, we would be willing to even die for them. Um, the next slide shows a picture of, of my family going to, to Disneyland. Um, how many of you have been to Disneyland? Okay, seems like most of you, you know, kind of known as the happiest pay, place on earth. My family immigrated um, from Hong Kong. I was born in Hong Kong. My family immigrated as re religious refugees uh, when I was four years old. And I grew up in San Francisco. And my family was really poor when I was growing up. So my family didn't go on many vacations. And sometimes at school, we would hear about other people going on ski trips or going to other cities. And sometimes I would feel really jealous because my family, because of finances, couldn't afford to do some of those things. Um, nowadays, if you grow up in a middle-class family, you take for granted certain things, including vacations. And I've heard some people say, um, like some kids say, oh, you know, this summer our family's going to Disneyland again. You know, as if it's like a chore to have to go to Disneyland again. And sometimes people, they've done certain things. It's like they've gone to Disneyland a couple times, and the family says, oh, this summer we're going to Disneyland. The kids might say, oh, we're going to Disneyland again. They want sometimes always something newer or better or different. Does that make sense? That sometimes, even if something's really good, if you've done it a few times, you want something even better or something different. But for many families, including mine growing up, Sometimes some families don't have the opportunity to go to places like Disneyland. In, in my early 20s, um, I worked as a youth pastor for the Salvation Army in an inner city part of San Francisco. And most of the kids came from Valencia Gardens, from the Valencia Gardens housing project. And that was known as one of the best places to get crack cocaine in San Francisco. So not, 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 a, not a great environment, not a great place. Um, and most of the kids had um, single mom, single teenage moms, and just trying to get by in terms of surviving in San Francisco. And certainly, none of the families had an opportunity to go somewhere like, like Disneyland. So as a 20-something-year-old youth pastor, I had a dream of taking 50 of these kids to Disneyland. So I started going to some of these Kiwanis business meeting. It's like kind of a business person's lunch. And um, over time, after being there several months, I persuaded them to help support my dream of raising some money so we could take 50 kids to Disneyland. So they gave a certain amount of money, not a whole lot, so I had a small budget to work with. And what I did was I rented a bus to take the 50 kids and then a few adults and a few of, of, of staff at the youth center. And we picked the kids up at 2 a.m., and the reason we did that was that we didn't have to pay, I didn't have a budget for sleeping overnight, you know, because hotels are expensive. So we picked the kids, mostly from Valencia Gardens and some other places they walked over and met us at 2 a.m., and the bus drove nonstop from San Francisco 
to Disneyland. And, you know, in the middle of the night, there isn't traffic. We got there right at 8 o'clock, right when it opened. And we, this was back in the 1980s. So we gave each of the kids like $10 of spending money, which was decent at the time. And we stayed at Disneyland from 8 a.m. until 12 midnight. And during the whole bus ride over, guess how much sleep we got? Zero, right? Because the kids were like so excited about going to Disneyland and they were talking about it, you know, for months ahead of time. So we spent the whole day, like 12, 16 hours at Disneyland. And we didn't get on a bus till 1, 1, 1 a.m., you know, because the park closes at 12, but it takes a while to round up everybody and go back to the bus. And then we drove back from 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 Disneyland back to San Francisco again so we didn't have to pay money. A different bus driver um, for 1 a.m. and then we got to San Francisco like around 7 a.m. So this was just a wonderful experience, a wonder once-in-a-lifetime experience for some of the kids. And they couldn't stop talking about it before, during, and afterwards. But 1 John 3.17 challenges us to do something like this. It says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? So whatever way we can, in that case, it was providing a magical Disneyland experience for the kids. For, for your church, it, it, it sounds like you're doing a lot of things. You're doing the trunk and treat, trunk or treat, helping the kids stay safe on Halloween, um, the whole Bethlehem experience. I would encourage your church to continue to do these type of things, not just for members of the church, but for people in the community to help them connect to the church and to God. Um, the next slide um, is about the SF Homeless Project. And during seminary, I went to seminary in the late 80s. And um, I spent one summer doing CPE, which is clinical pastoral education. Normally, CPE is done in a hospital. But I did my CPE in the Haight-Ashbury of San Francisco. So I spent one summer just walking around the Haight-Ashbury, learning how to do street ministry. And I grew up in a pretty sheltered home, and it was just eye-opening. And I had worked at the Salvation Army, working with kids on this housing project. But spending a couple of months on the street, just eating at the soup kitchen, talking to street people, was just a a wonderful, life-changing experience for me. And there were six of us seminary students in the program, and we even um, opted voluntarily to spend one night in Golden Gate Park just to experience firsthand what it's like to have to find housing when you don't have anywhere automatically to, to go sleep. And, and that was kind of a somewhat sleepless night. You're kind of sleeping with one eye open, you know, in case somebody comes by or anything like that. But that, that really helped me appreciate what it's like to, to uh, and we kind of dressed really scrubbily, didn't shave for a few days. And even something as simple as going to a restroom, when you walk into like a McDonald's and you don't buy anything, a lot of places, you know, now they have keys and codes and whatever, and you're not welcome if you don't look like a clean-cut, middle-class, you know, customer. So, so we had the first-hand experience of what it was like um, to, to have to survive on the streets, um, even though we only did it, like, for one night. And there's some people that, that that's not an option for them. 
And based on that, uh, my family and I started volunteering at the City Team Homeless Ministry. And I know Pastor Jonathan, many of you help with the City Team here in San Jose. Um, I went with some people to the city team in, um, in Oakland, and once a month for about eight years, we led a worship service. And just lots of stories, but one story that really stood out was that um, I, I often would, would, would preach the message, and once after, after my message, um, one of the regulars came up to me afterwards, and he said, um, Reverend Augie, is this selfish to ask for prayer for yourself? And I, I paused for a moment and said, no, no. You know, God wants us to, to, to pray, kind of come before God with our needs, big and small. And he said, isn't it kind of selfish? You know, I, I know we should be praying for other people, but isn't it selfish to ask God for prayers for ourselves? I said, no, no, no. Um, did, did you have a prayer on your heart? And he said, well... You know, he's in the city team, recovery ministry. City team, in case you're not familiar with, is this Christian recovery for a program for people to get out of various addictions, including addictions from drugs or alcohol. And, it, and the residents of the program stay in a one-year program to kind of make some life changes. So he said he's been in the city team um, recovery program for about six months. Um, on their way to recovery, starting to look for maybe a job. And he said, it's really hard um, to find a job or even apply for a job when you've kind of been living on the streets. Because a lot of times, um, job applications ask, well, what have you been doing in the last five or ten years? And saying, well, I've been sleeping under the freeway or sleeping on a bench really doesn't make you qualified in terms of of most jobs. So he said he's starting kind of at the bottom. He's going to go apply for a job at Goodwill, driving one of their trucks. And he said he he was really, really nervous because he had not interviewed or had a job for, you know, who knows how long. So I said, well, you know, let, let, let me pray for you. And sometimes God answers prayer in God's timing. So God may not answer your prayer. Yes, right away. You may have to be persistent and keep asking God to provide a job for you in God's timing. So we, I, I, I prayed for him. And in the following month, um, I was giving the message again. And then afterwards, the, the man came, came and approached me, and he said he was sleeping in the loft up there stairs because this is in Oakland, you know, kind of tight space. So they have some sleeping quarters right above the assembly hall where we have our worship service. So he said he had a long day. He was tired. He was sleeping. But he heard my voice when I was preaching. And he said he really had to come and share some good news with me. And he had a big smile on his face, much happier than the last month when I saw him. He reached into his, his pocket and pulled out some keys and said, God answers prayer. He got his job driving a truck for goodwill. So um, in many cases, when we work in the community, big and small, we help people make connections with God. And I know your church does a lot of things in the community, and hopefully through your trunk or tree, through Bethlehem, you'll be able to touch the people that God really needs to touch. And you, you, your church, will be the vehicle to touch the people. And as 1 John 3.17 says, if we have material possessions 
And those of us who are kind of middle class, living in the Bay Area, we probably have more than most of the people in the world. God wants us to share our money, our time, our resources, our talents with, with, with people around us. Um, the next slide um, is about 1 John 3.18. And 3.18 talks about not loving just with words or speech, but with tangible actions. Not just talking about your faith, but acting upon your faith. And one of the best ways of sharing the love of Christ with other people is helping other people enter an eternal relationship, an eternal connection with the God of the universe. And I appreciate um, Pastor Margaret's upcoming faith talk. I would encourage everybody to attend uh, to, to learn ways that we naturally can talk to people about our faith. And for many of us, we just think, well, it's only the pastors who can share their faith. But God calls all of us to share our faith. And in fact, there are some people that we uniquely are able to share the faith with that maybe pastors don't have the relationship with or, or the same connection with. And my example is um, Alice Poon. Um, two summers ago, we had a Bible study and prayer meeting at our church. And afterwards, we had a time of just sharing in terms of prayer requests. And one of my good friends, Larry Poon, shared that um, to, to, to pray for the faith of his mother, his mother Alice. And I asked, oh, you know, we'll definitely pray for Alice. Um, how old is she? And he said, 99. And I said, oh, we better start praying really fast because, you know, I don't know what health she's in or how she is, but for most 99-year-old people, it's not like they have like a 20-year life expectancy ahead of them. So, and he said he wasn't sure that she knew Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And one of his deep prayer requests and one of his hopes was that she would accept Christ before it was her, her, her time on earth was up. So uh, about a month later, in September, we had a church picnic. And Alice, um, Larry only brings her, she, he, she lives in a senior home, so he only brings her for special occasions. So he brought her for this church picnic. So I, I, I prayed um, ahead of time for God to speak to me through Alice. And I talked to Larry and said, help me on, tell me a little bit more about your mother. So he talked about her background, how she, his parents had emigrated to San Francisco, very poor immigrants in San Francisco, Chinatown. And one of the first years when they settled in San Francisco, Chinatown, the Salvation Army um, gave them a turkey because they didn't have money to buy a turkey for Thanksgiving, and they were just so thankful to the Salvation Army. So that was my connection. So I sat down next to Alice during our church picnic, and I said, Alice, my name is Reverend Augie. I work for this church pension board, but I am ordained minister, and I used to be a youth pastor for the Salvation Army. And that was the key. She said, oh, let me tell you about the Salvation Army. And, you know, she told me the turkey story about how the Salvation Army was very helpful to, to her family when they first came to, to, to the United States. And I said, Alice, um, do you know why the Salvation Army did that? The Salvation Army is also a church. And they gave you a turkey 
based on the love of Jesus Christ that they had in their hearts. And I said, is that something that you've experienced in in your life in terms of this love and this relationship with God who created us and created the world? And she said, oh, um, I'm not sure. And so I said, Alice, you know, I have this book. It was The Steps to um, Faith by Billy Graham. And I, I said, can I go over this booklet with you? Which lets you know how you can enter this relationship with the God who loves us, who created us, who has the plan for our life as well as for, for eternal life. So I went over the booklet with her and I said, does this reflect um, what's, what you want in your heart? She said, yeah, yeah it kind of makes sense. So I asked her, um, her son Larry to come over, three of us held hands, and we prayed for the certainty of Jesus Christ being in her life, not just now, but eternally, so that when her time on earth was up, she knew that she would be seeing God face to face in heaven. And um, a few months later, on Easter Sunday, Alice was baptized in our church at the age of 99 and a half. And yeah, you could clap, we could rejoice, because the Bible says, you know, the angels rejoice each time just one person becomes a Christian or enters the gates of heaven. And like your church, we're part of the Baptist tradition, but we're also sensible, and we decided not to immerse 99-and-a-half-year-old Alice, so we just sprinkled her. I think God would understand, and Baptists hopefully would understand. So, and Alice um, made it almost to her 101st birthday. She passed a few days before. But um, when her time on earth was was up, um, she went with the assurance and the knowledge that she was going to see God in the next phase of her life. And for any of you, even if you've been in church for a long time, if you've never made that commitment, I encourage you to talk to me or one of the pastors for the certainty to pray, to know for sure that God is part of your life. So this is 1 John 3.18 which tells us that love is not just talking or mouthing the words, but it's, a, it's acting upon the love. On the next slide, talks about some tangible actions of love. And most of the time when we talk about love, we talk about how we can help other people. What I wanted to do is pause that sometimes in life, sometimes there are seasons where it's all right for us to receive the love of other people. And I know for many of us, me included, it's fairly easy for us to be the doer or the giver, but it's much harder for us to be the receiver of love, to ask for help from other people. Eight years ago was one of the hardest seasons of my life. Um, My wife, Catherine, was diagnosed with two forms of cancer, um, breast cancer, and then a few months later with thyroid cancer. So she has surgery, chemotherapy. During one of her chemotherapy treatments, um, her, her elderly father fell, and he went to the hospital in a coma, And Catherine could not even visit him in the hospital because during the chemo, her white blood cell count was so low. She had to wait a week before she could go visit her father, and he passed away. So during that time, um, Catherine had one of these um, sharing bridge or whatever blogs about, you know, what was going on. And some people started 
um, offering to bring food for us and give rides for our kids. And for me, especially for a guy, my natural thing is, no, you know, we don't need it. We could take care of things ourselves. But God really spoke to me and said that sometimes we need to swallow our pride and allow people to minister to us, to share the love of Christ with us. That we don't always have to be doing and giving. And in fact, it's easier to be the doer giver because you're like up here and you're helping other people. But sometimes it's okay to be here where we're saying, my life is not all together. I can use some help. I can use some prayer. I can use some food. I can use somebody to help the kids with the shuttles from school so that I, I could stay with Catherine. So during this season, we really learn to, to receive and appreciate the love of other people. And one of the people that brought food to us um, was a lady named Doris who was actually in the high school youth group. When I was in college, I was a youth group leader for a church, and we had about 40 youth, and she was part of the youth group, and we stayed in touch, and she and her family came and brought us some food. And um, to bring it full circle, about a year or two ago, um, Doris was diagnosed with kidney failure, and she was waiting for a kidney transplant, and she went through all that stuff. So... Catherine and I brought food for Doris and her family. So sometimes there are seasons where we receive help from some other people. There are other seasons where we could give help. But part of how God wants us to work as a community, as a church, is not to be shy about asking for tangible actions of love. When we need help, when we're overstressed, when we're overloaded, changing jobs, going through relationship problems, someone dying, whatever it is, not just ask for prayer, but if people can bring food or help with some of the rides, there are ways that the love of God can be shared, not just for us giving, but also receiving. Um, the next slide, let, let, let's just read First John three sixteen to 18 together. This is... Oh, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words of speech, but with actions and in truth. And we're going to watch a short video, and then afterwards I'm going to... Um, mention a few reflection questions. That video was um, from the Jubilee Project, and the father is um, Pastor Dave Gibbons. He, his, his mother is Korean. His father is um, Caucasian. And um, I just want to conclude um, with the next slide, which has some questions for reflection. And to emphasize, 1 John 3.16 this is how we know what agape love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Some very simple questions. One, have you accepted the sacrifice of Christ? How has Christ's life, death, and resurrection changed your life? And I want to add, if you have not accepted Christ, 
please take the opportunity this morning to talk to a pastor or me and do so. Two, how can you exhibit the heart of Christ to others around you, at home, school, work, church, or in the community? Three, what are some of the time, talents, and treasures that God has blessed you with? How can you share some of these with others? And four, how has God spoken to you through these Bible verses? What are one or two tangible things that you can do differently to make a difference with your life?